obviously nothing about our current circumstance and society is ideal, certainly not for us. We want to do as God wants to do, to gather together as His people. One of the advantages, though, is how this has helped our imaginations of all our brothers and sisters all around the world who we don't see, who we don't know, who are worshiping the same God, as David mentioned early on, that uh, though we're all separated from each other, there's a closeness that comes with all of us who are seeking God all around the world and all of us who love each other dearly here in Brooklyn as we're helping each other. If you want to, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 is where we're going to read in just a minute. Acts chapter 13. In the early 1700s, in the city of Venice, music was changing. Musical technology had changed. There was a great composer who, I don't know any of his works, but I've heard of him, and probably a lot of you have, Vivaldi was changing the world with the music he was writing. But what's not often known is the, the group of musicians that Vivaldi worked with that really allowed him to popularize his compositions. He was a really complex um, composer, and it wasn't like everybody could perform his stuff. But there was this group in Venice known as the Coro, uh, Fiegle de Coro, Daughters of the Choir. And they were insanely talented. People would come from all over the world. Foreign dignitaries, uh, celebrities of the day would come to hear these uh, women perform, which was shocking in that day. Uh, for women to be able to perform the, the instruments they performed, it was normally thought of as only uh, instruments that men could utilize at that time. And so people were amazed and they were entranced by these women, like uh, the Gre Greco-Roman sirens that would draw people in. These women and their performances drew people in. But it was an interesting setup. There was a curtain uh, that would be between them and the congregants who would come listen to them. By the way, their music was so important, the Senate uh, ordered these women to play even more, play even more creatively in order to curry favor with God as they went to uh, fight the Ottoman Empire at that time. It's not how it works, obviously. God doesn't listen to people just because you're a good musician, but you get the point. These were so good uh, these, these performers were so great, people thought they could tap into the divine with their music. Well, at one point, uh, there was uh, a French political philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who would actually lead many of the thoughts that led to the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and frankly, the society that we understand today or throughout the world is in large part due to this man's influence. Well, he had heard about these women, and so he came to hear them perform. And he was like everyone, the people that were there crying and and, and just their lives were changed by this music. It was something they'd never heard before. And so he, like some previously, went to those who were the managers and said, I have to see these women. I hear the beauty of their music, but I have to see them for myself. I, I want to be able to visualize these people. I could see them behind the light of the curtain, swaying as they played their music, but I have to see them. And so he was allowed to. He was brought behind the curtain. And I don't want to repeat to you the kinds of words that he used to describe the figlier de corporal. Whenever he saw these women, the beauty of their music was matched by what he would describe as the horror of their appearance. These women were disfigured in various ways, some missing limbs or digits. Um, what wasn't really known very popularly, but what people saw when they went behind the curtain was that uh, these women had been damaged for a variety of reasons. 
uh, all of them were orphans. They had been dropped off at the Hospital de Pietra, the Hospital of Pity, because some of whom uh, would have been dropped off because when they were born, maybe because uh, their mothers were prostitutes in the very vibrant um, sex industry in, in Venice. Uh, others maybe would have been found by their parents and thought they were cursed by God or some sort of other horrible thought that their parents would have had. But the bottom line is these women, to behold, were not beautiful. People said horrible things about them whenever they saw them. And yet everyone could hear the beautiful music, and yet once they saw behind the curtain, they were thought and they were said to be ugly in the eyes of people. I want to tell you a story about an ugly man in the Bible. Uh, this man... On one occasion, though he had sworn to serve God, lied to a priest, took consecrated items for his own personal use, things that were supposed to be just for God, took them for himself, and then fled for refuge, not to his God who had done so much to prove his worth, but this man fled into the arms of a pagan king for refuge and safety. Uh, this man had a temper. One time, whenever a neighbor of his insulted him, he decided he was not only going to kill that man, which is a little bit of an overreaction for an insult, but he was also going to kill the entire household of this man who had insulted him. If it wasn't for the wife of this neighbor being wise and, and uh, uh, persuasive, this man would have killed his neighbor and all of his household because he got offended. Later on in his life, uh, this man became king. And as king, one night he looked off the, the roof and he saw a woman bathing. And rather than respecting this woman's dignity and just walk turning away, he inquired about her and found out that she was the wife of one of his top generals in his army. And rather than having that stop him and say, oh, well, I shouldn't pursue this any further, he brought the woman to his home, uh, slept with her, impregnated her. And whenever he knew he was going to be found out for his infidelity, he tried to trick the woman's husband to leave the front lines of battle to come and sleep with the man's wife so that it would not be found out that the king had actually taken this man's wife for his own. But the man had such honor he wouldn't do it and so the king had the man killed in battle. Uh, after this, and after the, the king wrongly took this woman as his wife and acted like everything was fine, uh, it didn't really get much better. The king's impropriety certainly crippled his sense of uh, uh, integrity such that when one of his children sexually assaulted one of his other children, the king didn't do anything about it. He certainly was disturbed by it, but he didn't deal with it like he should have. And so one of his other sons conspired and murdered the son who had assaulted the king's daughter. And the king still did nothing and just watched it happen. His family was in ruins. Later on, the king would, uh, would take action such that, uh, well, he violated God's uh, trust, and uh, as a result, 70,000 of his subjects were executed by God as punishment, in part, for the king's sin. He's an ugly man. I want you to see, though, what Acts chapter 13 says about when God heard the music of this man's life. Whenever God looked at this man, this is what he had to say about him. Acts chapter 13, in speaking about King David, the scripture says this, Acts 13 and verse 22, it says, After removing Saul, the predecessor of this ugly man, King David, after removing Saul, God made David their king, and God testified concerning him. This was God's testimony. David's on trial. What's going on with this guy? What should we think about this guy? God, what do you think? God testified about him and said, I have found David, son of Jesse, 
the ugly man, a man after my own heart. And he will do everything I want him to do. And it was from this man's descendants that God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Do you hear what God says? That ugly man who did all those things that I just enumerated, God says, that's the guy, when I look down on earth, I'm saying, who's my, who are my people? What's going on? I, I see David, and that's the one. He's a man after my own heart. He's one that I see with favor. And I know he's going to do all that I want to do, all that you wanted to do. God, are you kidding me? Look at all the bad stuff he did. And God had such a love for David, such an adoration for David. The music of David's life was so beautiful to God that God said, I'm going to use you to bring about a Savior into the world, Jesus. You go a little further down in, the, in this sermon in Acts 13, expounds upon this. At verse 30, speaking of Jesus, it says, But God raised Jesus from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now witnesses to our people. And we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, what God promised to David, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. By the way, the second psalm was a psalm about King David's royal lineage. And here's what was said about it. David's royal lineage, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That's God speaking, saying to David's descendants, most of all to Jesus, I'm your father, you're my son. God is honoring this ugly man. God raised up Jesus from the dead so that he will never be subject to get to decay. As God has said, here's the, the connection God made long ago in the prophets. This is what he's about to reference from Isaiah 55. And this is one of many passages that talk about becoming Savior. And look what it's connected to. Isaiah 55 and verse 3 that's quoted here in Acts 13 says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to that ugly man, David. So it is stated elsewhere in a psalm that David wrote, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see decay. God exalted, God honored, God heard beautiful music in the life of this ugly man, David. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed, but the one whom God raised up from the dead did not see decay. The Savior and the salvation for the world came through a man like David. And look at the way verse 36 describes David. You saw at the beginning that David was described as a man after God's own heart. But it's not just that David's heart lined up with God's heart, or David was somebody that God looked at with affection. But it says that David served the purpose of God. He fulfilled what God wanted done. He was a servant of God. How is that possible? Here's why I want us to talk about this. And, and uh, by the way, we mentioned earlier that the, the Bible reading this month is in the book of Samuel. Um, what I'd like to do uh, is going to be painful, just to be honest. Uh, we're going to do an overview of the life of David and try to look at what was it that made this man's life beautiful to God. Because we look at him and we look at so many of his failures. They're some of the worst imaginable. The things I mentioned earlier, I mean, every dimension of life, David did something horrible in his family, for his nation, in his religious practices, in his personal morality and ethics, everything. He did all kinds of bad stuff. No matter who you are, you if you feel like, man, I've done so bad, I, I killed somebody, or I cheated on my spouse, or I stole somebody else's spouse, or I disrespected God, or I've harmed other people with my foolish actions at work or in society, whatever you may think, David did it. And the scripture says that this man, David, fulfilled the purpose of God. He served the purpose of God. He was a man after God's own heart. And the reason why that's possible is uh, a statement is because of what God said at the very beginning of David's story, 1 Samuel 16. God does not look at people the way that man looks at people. Just like Jean-Jacques Rousseau saw those women in a way that 
wasn't really fair or right or true to who they were. God doesn't look at us primarily through our failures. He looks at us uh, through our heart, who we are on the inside. And so uh, what I'd like to do is look at David's heart and how this ugly man could serve the purpose of God, how he could be a man after God's own heart, and how we can. You may be watching this, and you may be a person who's following after God faithfully. You may be a person who's never really been that serious about God, and you may think, God can never do anything to me. I'm too ugly. My life's too ugly. I can't really serve God or be with Him. I hope what we look at for these next few minutes will encourage you to know that, no, you can be a person after God's own heart. However ugly your life may be or may have been, you too can serve the purpose of God and, uh, and enjoy the holy and sure blessings of David. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at three character traits of David that made him the kind of person whose life was beautiful music to God. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 16 is where we get introduced to David. That's that line, God doesn't look at people the way people do. God looks at the heart of a man. And the reason why that line was given was uh, the prophet Samuel had come to David's house, his father's house, Jesse. And when he came to the house, Samuel said, hey, one of your sons is going to be king. That's what God told me. And so bring all your sons. So Jesse did. Brought, brought in all of his sons. And the first one, Eliab. He was tall. He was handsome. And Samuel thought, this is the guy. Perfect king material. And God said, that's not the guy. I don't look at people the way people look at people. I look at people in their heart. Well, so he goes through all the sons. And God's like, nope, 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 nope. And so Samuel says to Jesse, we've gone through all your sons. God said one of your sons is going to be king. Do you have any other kids? And Jesse is like, well, oh, uh, I mean, yeah, but you said you came to pick a king. I've got my son David, but he's the youngest of the bunch. He's the kid that's watching the sheep. It couldn't have been him. And Samuel says, go get him. And so they bring him in, and David says, that's the one. Samuel anoints him as king. But here's the problem. There was already a king in Israel, King Saul. David's just a kid. He was the king who might be king one day. Not yet, though. Anyway, in 1 Samuel 17, we see a scene where the people of Israel, under the leadership of the present king, King Saul, uh, were facing uh, an insurmountable enemy, a man named Goliath, who the text says was a giant. He's described in these terrifying ways. He had humongous armor that showed how strongly he had been built. He'd been a, 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 a soldier throughout his entire life from the time he was a young man. He was, uh, by our calculations, if we're calculating it right, would have been about nine feet tall. It's measured in different measurements they would have used in that culture, but nine feet tall, right? A warrior, nine feet tall, huge armor. And uh, he would go out every day and taunt the Israelites, say, why don't you send somebody, and if he can beat me, then we'll be your servants. But if I beat him, you guys belong to us. All the Israelites were terrified. Well, David came to visit, and David saw it, and he saw, man, what's wrong with everybody? And listen to what he has to say to King Saul. By the way, King Saul, who should have been out there fighting, the king is supposed to go battle for his people, but Saul wasn't. But listen to what David says uh, in the conversation in 1 Samuel 17. As we read this, uh, this portion of the story, which, man, is such a beautiful, amazing story. And even if you've never read the Bible and you're watching this, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. You may not even know it's from the Bible. You've just heard it when there's some really mighty uh, force facing an, uh, uh, an insignificant opponent. This is where the story comes from. Listen to what drove David, and we get a, a little insight into what made David beautiful, a man after God's own heart, someone who served the purpose of God in his generation. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 31, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 32. The little kid David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. 
Your servant will go out and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out and fight this Philistine. You're only a young man. And this guy, he's been a warrior since he was a young man. Saul replied, uh, David uh, said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I love that. He went after it. He didn't wait for it to come to him. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from this Philistine also. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now before he went, Saul dressed David in his own clothes, his own war clothes. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David put on his sword over the tunic and he tried walking around, but he wasn't really used to them. You can imagine a kid in a grown man's you know, army outfit and he's trying to walk around, but he can't even walk around in it. And so David said to Saul, I, I cannot go in these because I'm not used to them. I've never tested them. So he took them all off. And then for his weaponry, he took his staff, or maybe I should say his stick in his hand, he chose five little rocks from the stream, smooth stones, it said, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. What a dummy. He's going to go fight. I mean, this is the ultimate bringing a, I don't know, what to a what fight. I mean, this is just foolishness. You're going to go fight this guy who's all dressed in thick armor and has a javelin and a spear and a sword and he's nine feet tall and you're going to take some rocks from the river that you just found? You just walked, just picked them up and you got your stick and bag and sling and that's it? What's wrong with you, kid? Well, here's what was wrong with him. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. You can hear the music playing as they come closer and closer to each other. He looked at David over. Uh, he looked David over, and he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. In other words, he hadn't been out long enough in his life to start looking ugly like all of us who've had too many suns and moons pass in our lives. And he despised him. And to despise someone doesn't mean to hate him. It means like it's irrelevant. You know, it's like whenever you see a dad, you know, playing uh, playing soccer or basketball with his kid. I mean, he doesn't have to really pay attention. He just dribbles around the kid. He just runs around. It's not even the Philistine. Like this kid, this kid's nothing. Listen to what he says in verse 43. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? No doubt a reference to the staff that David had in his hand. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David, the little kid that everybody knew was about to get cooked by the Philistine. And no doubt all of the guys in the army thought, man, one of us should have gone. This guy's done. And now we're going to have to serve the Philistine. You know what? We're going to say it doesn't count because this isn't a real warrior. This is just a kid. We don't have to serve these guys. This isn't a real fight. Whatever they were saying, here's what David said. Verse 45. You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I'll give the carcasses of all the Philistine army, all the people you're leading, to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and he'll give all of you into our hands. The Philistine, now he's mad. He moved closer to attack David. And David, I love this line, I love this scene in the movie in my head, David ran quickly to meet him. But he had forgotten something. He didn't have any weapon. So as he's running, verse 49, reaching into his bag and taking out one of those stones from the brook, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. And that day, a great victory was won in Israel. The Philistine army ran in fear, and God routed them because of this little kid who had faith in God. The, thing that, the first thing that made David beautiful in God's eyes, the first thing that made the music of David's life beautiful in God's ears, was that he really had faith in God. And here that faith was manifested in a radical courage to do the right thing when the moment of decision came. David knew what was right. David didn't care that everybody else said he couldn't do it. He didn't care that nobody else was doing the right thing. He didn't care that everybody else was afraid. David knew what was right, and he ran to do it. I love that line. Can you see that in your head? This kid who's facing an undefeatable enemy, this giant he sees the guy coming. He doesn't wait for him. Just like that lion and bear, David ran to take them down in the name of the Lord. He ran to take down the Philistine because he knew what was right and good. And so he just did it. No matter the odds, no matter what everybody else said, his faith led him to have a radical courage to do what was right in the face of against all the odds. And I'll say, sometimes we read that, we're like, oh yeah, I could imagine that. Could you imagine doing that? Like, you have this moment of decision. Probably a lot of us have had a moment of decision where you had to do something hard and you're like, all right, I can grit my teeth. I'm scared, but I'm going to just do it. And you do it. The other thing that impressed me about David's faith is it wasn't just something he did in one particular moment. It was something that he was resilient about. He kept on having faith. And, and here's why I say this. We're not going to read this, but the rest of 1 Samuel is about David on the run in the wilderness. Here's what happened. After this battle, all the people were so excited and they loved what David did. They would sing songs. All the women came out singing a song. Saul, that's the king, has slain thousands. That sounds pretty good, but David has slain his ten thousands. Well, Saul became insanely jealous, so much so that he personally tried to kill David on multiple occasions. He sent assassins to try to kill David in his house. He sent David on suicide missions to try to kill him. Now, of course, he couldn't just off him publicly because the people loved him so much. He had to try to do it in these... Uh, 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 subversive kind of ways. but And so what that led to was David on the run. By the way, David made some mistakes during that time. But all throughout this time of David, for years, perhaps decades, it's hard to tell exactly the timeline, but for a long time he's on the run, in the wilderness, public enemy number one, being chased down, all the while still fighting for God, still fighting the enemies of God, still trying to serve the people, and still trying to serve God's purpose. Man, what would you have done? Years, decades of God's promise not coming true. God said you'd be the king. And now this bozo Saul who's ruining the nation, who hates you, and all you're trying to do is help him and serve him, and he hates you. What well, When would win the point you're like, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to lay down in this cave. I'm just going to die. Or you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. Let me go with the worldly people. Let me go with the bad people. Let me do that. Or when would be the point where you would say, you know, it's just too much, and I'm going to curse God and die, or I'm going to rebel, whatever it may be. 
David never did that, ultimately. Now, don't get me wrong. He made some mistakes, some of the ones we outlined earlier. But at the end of the day, he kept coming back to God. I want to show you the things that were in David's heart just briefly. Look at Psalm 18. Just read a couple of statements. We're going to come back to Samuel in just a second. But look at Psalm 18. I want to listen. This is uh, one of David's reflections after his period of resilience, of continuing to be faithful and loyal to God, even through great trials, even through this time of the wilderness, he kept having faith in God. He never gave up on God. He knew at the end of the day, God was the one who was going to provide for him, not only in that moment of radical decision against Goliath, but in the lonely caves, in the dangerous deserts, in the places where it felt like God was far away, in the places where he felt like all the people were against him, when it felt like there was no chance of any good, of any light shining through, David kept trusting God. And listen to what he says as he reflected on that period of his life in Psalm 18. We know from the header that this is a reflection on that period. And he says in Psalm 18, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh God is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Really, David? So what was that like? Well, when I was in trouble, verse 3, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I have been saved from my enemies. Note, this is after years, perhaps decades of trials. He says, you know what? I kept calling on the name of the Lord. I kept trusting in Him and now I've been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help, and from his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. David said, during this time I was crying out to God. I was seeking God. I was imploring God, and I knew I could count him. That's what made David uh, beautiful to God. The music of his life was one of faith, faithfulness, loyalty, resilience. No matter the trial, no matter the difficulty, he kept going back to the Lord. Listen to another one. This is right in the middle, Psalm 34. Right in the middle of this time period of David's life with such trial and difficulty, here's what he said as he looked around and saw, man, you know, I made some mistakes. I've kind of been turning my back on God a little bit. I need to turn back. Listen to what he says as he reflects on his life in the midst of his trials. And by the way, if you're sitting there, you're like, I'm in the midst of my trials. Say the words of David. Pray this prayer of David. Believe what David believed about God. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will extol or I will bless the Lord at all times, including bad times. His praise will always, not just in good days, but always be on my lips. I will glory or boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord of me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him, and I might add, those who look to Him when they're in their deepest trials and when they're in their harshest struggles, those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. You'll shine with beauty and glory. That's what David says. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. David, his belief, the thing that made him resilient, the thing that kept him faithful was he knew, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David, are you serious? Good? Good while you're in the wilderness? Good while God's promises haven't come true yet? Good while you're on the run? Good while you're being betrayed by those who you're trying to serve? Yeah, the Lord is good even in those moments. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The reason why David was beautiful to God was because he was resilient, because he was courageous, because he was a man of faith. 
But David's faith wasn't the only thing that made him beautiful to God. His faith and his, his view of God gave him a different view of himself. Matter of fact, when you back up a little bit in verse 2 and again in verse 6, you see a little bit about how David viewed himself. And that leads us to the second thing that made David beautiful. This man who did a lot of ugly things, and in our viewpoint, was just an ugly man and had an ugly story. But in God's eyes, was a man after his own heart, was someone who served the purpose of God. Well, how? In verse 2 and verse 6, David either indirectly or directly refers to himself in some really pathetic ways. Verse 2, he says, let the afflicted or let the humble or let the lowly hear what I'm telling you. And then in verse 6, he calls himself a poor man. A poor man? A man who takes down giants? A man who's been anointed as king? A man who's God's special servant? Yeah, I'm a poor man. The second thing that made David beautiful was not only that he was a man of great deep faith, but he also was a man who had a sense of lowliness as he viewed himself. He didn't think he was a big deal. He didn't think he was important. He didn't think he was mighty or powerful or special. If he did, it was only because of the fact that God made him special, that God loved him, that God cared for him. Turn back to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'll show you just a few examples of David's lowliness of mind, his, maybe you want to say humility, but I want you to think about lowliness in the sense of he didn't think in a high way about himself. And I'll tell you, so many of us, we struggle with that in two ways. Some of us actually think we're a big deal. We think we're important because we're intelligent, you're rich, you got a lot of friends, you've been successful, you're talented, whatever it may be, and you can have a high view of yourself. Well, the problem is if you have a high view of yourself and things start going badly and the bottom drops out, everything falls off a cliff. David, in his good moments, didn't struggle with that because he never thought of himself in a high way. He remembered that he was the kid that everybody forgot about out in the field. When it was time to line up to see who would be the king, he wasn't even on the list, not even the short list. He wasn't on the long list, short list, nothing. He was the one that the king said, you're just a kid, you can't do anything. David kept that sense, at least in his good moments. He had a lowliness of mind about himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, by this point, Daniel, uh, David excuse me, has become a great warrior. He's fought tons of battles. He's won great victories for God and for his people. And, and you would think, you know, it's time to take a victory lap, David. It's time to really, like, you know, toot your horn just a little bit. It's a little toot toot. And, you know, just take a victory lap. But look at what David, whenever he goes in and takes what would become called the city of David, Jerusalem, Zion. When that city was conquered and David took it, look at what David thought in 2 Samuel 5 and verse 12. David, because of his faith in God, had a lowliness of mind about himself. Verse 12, after all these great victories, after people of other nations were adoring David and coming and, and trying to ally with him and, and, uh, and, and curry favor with him, verse 12 it says, Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Now, the way that a lot of us and a lot of people throughout history that verse would have read, and David knew that he'd finally arrived because he'd been so successful and he'd overcome all his enemies and he had done so much and he felt really good about himself. That's not what it says. David knew that the Lord had established him. And that the Lord established him not for just David, but for the sake of the people. David didn't even think, oh, this is all about me, this is for me. No, David knew I'm a servant of God. I'm serving God's purposes. I'm serving God's people. He had a lowliness of mind. Verse 19 talks about how even before David would go out to battle, he would go ask God, hey God, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? And then whenever God said go, he went. Even when David made big mistakes, he had a lowliness of mind, ultimately. 
not always, by the way, the, the times when he didn't do right, it was because he didn't have this lowliness. He didn't have this humility. He started thinking in a proud way about himself. But in 2 Samuel 6, there was a moment where David had violated God's will for how to, to transport the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred worship instrument in um, ancient Israel. And because of that, someone was struck dead on the spot. Now, David was really angry about this. The text isn't clear if it means he was angry at God or angry at himself or just angry. You guys know how it goes. When things go wrong, you can get angry. But according to the account, we have a parallel account in the book of Chronicles. We're not going to read that. But in, in Chronicles, we learned that what David did is that he went back and read the word of God. And he realized, oh, we didn't do what God told us to do about transporting the ark. And so rather than just getting angry at God and saying, why didn't you appreciate this? I tried to bring your ark in. I'm trying to honor you in the sight of the people. I'm trying to lift you up. David said, this was my fault, guys. We didn't read the word of the Lord. And this time, we're going to do it right. You know, the, the person who's really humble, the person who has a lowliness of mind about themselves, doesn't think just because I want to do something good or just because I think that it's good means that it's good. They go to God. They listen to his word and say, God, what do you think? What do you want? What have you said? And I'm going to do that. David had a lowliness of mind to submit to the word. But look at Samuel, the second Samuel chapter 6. After going back and submitting to God's word, and of course this goes to the credit that he God gave for his victories, and now submitting to the word of God. In 2 Samuel 6, whenever they got everything straightened out, and now they're transporting the ark in the proper way, in, uh, in verse 12, uh, it talks about how they're, they're, they're bringing it in. In verse 13, they're carrying the ark of the Lord. And then the priest just took a few steps. And David says, stop. And he sacrificed to the Lord. We're going back to the idea of sacrifice in just a minute. And then in verse 14, it says, wearing a linen ephod. In other words, uh, not full clothes. You might I don't know what a good parallel would be, but it's not dignified clothing, right? Uh, David, wearing this linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts, and the sound of trumpets. You see David? I mean, he's just dancing before the Lord. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't care what he looks like. He's not, and that's not how kings operate. You guys know. There's a, there's a dignity. You know, you got to wear the right clothes, and you got to behave yourself in a controlled kind of manner, and be cool, and be, you know, mature, and all that kind of stuff. David was like, hey, this is about Yahweh my God, who has saved me, and been there for me, and done so. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to worship with reckless abandon. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm just thinking about God because I'm nothing before him anyway, so I might as well worship with all my might. And I'll tell you, he did it so much so that look at the end of the chapter. He comes home after all this, and his wife meets him at the door, and she says, says in verse 20 of 2 Samuel 6, when David returned home to bless his household, you can just imagine he's like sweaty, he's so happy from this day of worshiping God and honoring God in the sight of all the people. He comes home, and Michael, the daughter of the former king Saul, David's wife, she came out to meet him and she said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. That's true. All that she said was true. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you speak of, I'll be held in honor. In other words, David says, I don't care. I don't care how stupid I look or how undignified I look. Who cares? God picked me. I mean, I was out there with the sheep, and God said, come on in to the palace. 
I don't care. I don't think of myself as a big deal. I'm not trying to exalt myself in my eyes or anybody's eyes. And I'll tell you, because of that, some people will see me as dignified, but I don't care about that. I'll be brought as low as possible because you know what? I'm already a nobody. The thing that made David beautiful in God's eyes is he saw himself with a lowliness that so many of us are tempted to ignore, to think of ourselves as a big deal or to want to think of ourselves as a big deal. You know, some of us struggle with this lowliness. We don't like it when people look at us like, oh, they're a loser, oh, they're not intelligent, oh, they're so strange, or whatever. And I'll tell you, one thing that draws us into the world and away from serving God's purposes is we don't have this lowliness of mind. We don't want to be looked at as losers. David said, I'll be undignified. I don't care what people think about me because I know what God thinks about me. I believe in him. I know what he is, and I know who he is, and I know why my life means anything. It's because of him. And so David had a lowliness of mind. This lowliness led him to care for people that nobody else would care, cripples and people that were outcasts. He said, that's my people. Come on, you know. Uh, matter of fact, in the next chapter, David had an idea for something he wanted to do for God, and God said, no, don't do it. And he kind of reproved David for the idea. It's interesting, David prays a prayer to God. And in that prayer, rather than saying, God, I just wanted to do something for you. Why do you have to always stop my plans? David says, God, thank you. Thank you for all the good you've done for me. Thank you for the blessings you've given me. And in that prayer, nine times, you can read it, 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, nine times David refers to himself as your servant. The reason why David did that, I mean, he's a king now. He's, he's big time. But David always saw himself in a lowly way. He saw himself as God's servant because of his faith in God, because he believed so radically in who God was and what God had done for him. David saw himself in a lowly way, in a humble way, knowing I'm nothing without God. And that's what made the music of David's life beautiful in God's ears, was because he had faith in God, a radical faith, a resilient faith, a courageous faith, and he had a lowliness of mind. It made him credit God rather than himself. It made him submit to God's word. It made him worship and honor and serve God with reckless abandon, not caring what anybody thought about him because he had this lowliness of mind. And that lowliness of mind led him to be a man of sacrifice. We actually saw that in the text we just read in 2 Samuel 6, where the, the people carried the ark for a few steps. They said, stop, i got to offer a sacrifice to God. They barely, I mean, six steps is nothing. They were going to have to travel a long distance to get to the, the place where they were going, and he offers a sacrifice. And actually, David's life wasn't just a life where he gave things to God in sacrifice, but he himself lived a life of sacrifice. Near the end of his life, look at 2 Samuel chapter 18. Near the end of his life, after some of those failures, some of those ugly sins that we talked about earlier, David's son led a coup d'etat against David's regime. And uh, so David's forces were fighting against David's son, and David said, hey, just don't harm my son. This son who had betrayed him, lied about him, cheated him out of his kingdom, David said, don't harm him. And tragically, the young man was killed. And I want you to listen to what David said. David, the king, the David, David who was betrayed by this son of his. Listen to what David said at the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 18 and verse 33. When he heard about the death of his son, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David didn't want vengeance for things that had been done to him. He actually wanted his life to be a sacrifice on behalf of someone else. It wasn't even just that that he didn't want vengeance. David wanted to be a sacrifice for the good of his people. Uh, there are two occasions near the end of David's life. One is actually in this uh, section, at the beginning of 2 Samuel 18. And another one is a little later where in 2 Samuel 21 it says that David was really too old to go out to battle. He's an old man at this point. 
but he didn't care. He said, I'm going. He got all his implements for war and he went out. He was so weak at this point, one of his soldiers actually had to defend him at the last second from being killed. And they said to him, David, listen, man, you're not allowed. We're not going to let you go out to war anymore. It's amazing to think about that old man who really didn't have the strength to lift his sword to fight battles anymore. He wanted to be a sacrifice for his people. He wanted to go out and fight alongside them. He wanted to serve, to do something. After all, he was the man who served the purpose of God in his generation. He wanted to be a sacrifice. And he understood that partly because of his own failures, he had to be a sacrifice. The last story in 2 Samuel is probably chronologically out of order, but it's placed at the end, I think, to give us a summation of the spirit of David. In 2 Samuel 24, go ahead and flip over there, is a story of David committing one of his most grievous sins. We mentioned this earlier, where because of action he took, if you have any questions about it, you can message us and we can talk in more detail. The bottom line is tens of thousands of David's subjects were killed by God as punishment for this sin. And so what David was instructed to do, well, actually, you can see what David said to God whenever it happened, and you hear the, the spirit of David and the care of David in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Whenever this happens in verse 10, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And then after the plague was given and all that sort of thing, listen to verse 17. David saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are just sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and on my family. David says, take me as a sacrifice. Punish me for the sake of the people. By the way, the people had sinned too. It wasn't like they were totally innocent in this situation. Anyway, God doesn't do that. But God does say, I want you to go and I want you to offer an animal sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord was standing there. And David goes to the place. And he shows up. And the man who owned the plot of land, he says, hey, king, listen, man, whatever you need, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the land. Here's the deed for it. I'll give you all the implements to burn things. I'll give you the animals for sacrifice. All of it. Listen to what David said, though. David said in 2 Samuel 24, and verse 24, the king replied to Arana, No. I will buy it for the full price. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. David lived a life of sacrifice. From his time of working with the sheep to fighting Goliath to living that life in the wilderness, continuing to serve God in faith, a man who was lowly of mind, serving his people, helping the cripples and the, the, the people who were in debt and the people who were distressed and all the bad things. David was giving his life as a sacrifice all the way to the end. That old king who didn't belong on the battlefield, he said, I'm going, and if that means I die, then I die for my people and for my God. He lived a life of sacrifice. And that's what made him beautiful to God. That's what made him a man who served the purposes of God in his generation. And yet, it's still an ugly story. We've skipped over in detail all the bad stuff that I mentioned at the beginning. So what are we supposed to do about that? How could God use someone like that to do something great? How could God hear all the music but then pull back the curtain and be okay with all the ugly behind it? But you already know the answer. David's descendant would come. And while David was faithful most of the time, Jesus came and he was faithful in every respect. Always obedient to God. Never failing while David was somebody who had a lowliness of mind, frankly, David should have had a lowliness of mind. Jesus 
was superior to the King David because Jesus had no business being lowly in any way. He was high and lifted up, and yet he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, of nobody on the earth, and died the death that none of us wanted to die and paid the price that none of us could ever pay. Jesus was not only superior to David in faith and in lowliness, but Jesus completed the sacrifice that David lived by most of the time, but not always, because David himself did things that were selfish and self-centered, and rather than sacrificing himself, he would take advantage of people at times, but Jesus, of course, never did. David served the purpose of God in his generation, just like you and me can serve the purpose of God in our generation. If we live by faith of radical courage and resilience and loyalty to God, we can serve the purpose of God in our generation. If we're people who have a lowliness of mind, who recognize we're nothing and we give credit to God and we submit ourselves to His Word and we see ourselves as just servants of God, we can have that same lowliness of God of mind and serve the purpose of God in our generation. We can be people who sacrifice ourselves, as Romans 12 says, present our bodies as living sacrifice to God. And in that way, we, just like David, God can look to us. He can listen to the music of our lives and hear beauty in that. And we can be people who are after God's own heart in spite of our ugliness because of Jesus. Let's finish here. Look at Mark chapter 10. Near the end of Jesus' life, just before he would uh, go on to be crucified, he spoke to his disciples who were, ar who were all arguing about who's the greatest, who played the most beautiful music with their service to God. And of course, they all had flaws and problems and weaknesses just like David and just like you and me. But Jesus tells them in Mark chapter 10 something about himself. And he, he tells them and tells us about how our lives really can be beautiful to God. The reason why we can believe that if we would live like David and like Moses and like all these people who are just like us, failures, mess-ups, even still God will lift us up. God will look at us and He won't see us the way we see ourselves or the way people see us, but He'll see us to our hearts if we follow after Jesus. And here's what His heart was. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve God faithfully. He came to be a servant, not to be served, with a lowliness of mind. And he gave his life as a sacrifice, but notice that one key word in there. That's a word I've tried to think a lot more about. He gave his life as a ransom. You know, so many of us are bound by our ugliness, our sin our wickedness, our failures. Just like those women in the Figlia de Corro in Venice in the 1700s were bound by the way people would have seen them. So much so that while they played such beautiful music, a curtain had to be put up so that people would actually stay and listen. They were bound by things that were, for them, outside of their control. But for us, our ugliness, our deformities are because of our own sin and because of our own choices. Jesus came to tear down the curtain. Jesus came to reshape us, remake us, to heal us, to make us so that it's true beauty coming out of our lives. He came to ransom us. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I could ever be good enough. I don't know that I could ever be beautiful to God. I don't know that my life could ever be anything more than the ugly sins that I've committed or the ugly temptations that are inside of me or the ugly problems that exist in my life because of my bad choices. Stop thinking that. Jesus didn't come just to give you a path of, hey, here's how to be a moral person. The story of David is not about 
uh, a self-help story or inspirational story. Hey, if you just do these three things, then God loves you. No, if you do these three things, then and many more things, by the way. We just talked about three. But if you do these things, then what it is is about you seeking God, seeking refuge in Him, trusting in Him, and knowing that in spite of all your ugliness, God will ransom you. He'll set you free. He'll tear down the curtain. He'll transform everything about us to make us just like Him once again. David and we can only serve the purpose of God for our generation. But Jesus came to serve the purpose of God for all generations so that we could be like David, servants of God, faithful, lowly in mind, living lives of total self-sacrifice, trusting in the grace of God to lead us home. May God help us to be like David. We've already been like him with all the ugliness. But if we can learn from what made him beautiful to the ears of God, we can accomplish something that, uh, that the rest of the world can. I said we we're going to finish in Mark 10, but I want to read you the last words of David in conclusion. 2 Samuel chapter 23. David wrote a song. It's fitting. In 2 Samuel 23, he recounts his life and he reflects on what God did through him and what we know God did through him because of what God would do through David's descendant, Jesus. And here's what he said. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, the son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob. The hero of Israel's songs. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. And this is what he said. Verse 3. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, or maybe to use the language from Acts 13, when he serves the purpose of God in his generation, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. He's like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Is not my house so with God? Well, at that time, not really, David. But because of the one who would come later, who would ransom him and ransom all of us, we too can be like the light of morning in the world. We too can be like the rain and the dew on the earth that brings up life. Because Jesus has given us life. Just like the hero of Israel's songs, he was made beautiful through the sacrifice of Jesus. So can we. Thank God for that. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for the hope that we have. Let's all bow our heads. Father, thank you for the story of your servant David. Thank you for showing us the whole picture, all of his ugliness and mess, his faithfulness, his lowliness of mind, his sacrificial spirit, most of all the hope that he put in the Savior that you would bring through his descendants. Jesus, thank you for giving your life as a ransom for us. Thank you for giving us a model for how to truly follow after and serve our God and Father. We pray that we honor you and that just as you came to be the light of the world, that we too would be like the light of morning, the dew and the rain that brings life to the earth. Give us the sure and holy promises that you made to your servant David and that you provided us through your perfect life, your sacrificial death, and through the power of your resurrection. Amen.